Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. If this is your first time, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here. Um, we're, this is really exciting because today we're starting this brand new series called In Search of the Beloved. So last Sunday, Cole and I spoke about what we really felt like the Lord was giving us for the vision for this next season. Um, what it's like the specific thing that he's calling us to examine and to kind of weave into the fabric of our community. And so our big picture vision for this season uh, is loving community and bold exploration. And we talked a little bit about what that's going to look like last week. Um, and so kind of how we feel it being structured is that we want to take this next season and really focus in on that idea of love, specifically the belovedness. Uh, and then we're going to be looking at what being loving community is, and then we're going to be looking at bold exploration means out of that place. And so we want to begin with this series called In Search of the Beloved. It's been on my heart for a long time um, that, we would, uh, that we would really set aside a season uh, to, to focus in on the story of Jesus um, and just kind of allow that to be the center of gravity for who we are as a community. Um, and we're going to be doing that through the Gospel of John. We call it the, the, the Gospel of Belovedness or the Beloved Gospel for that very reason. Um, and it's amazing because six times in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself in the third person. And he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, there's a lot of different ideas about why he does that. I think it's pretty safe to say he's not doing that to rub it in our faces that he's the one that Jesus loved and therefore not us. But I think the invitation in the Gospel of John is that he removes his name from the story so that we can insert our own. And that's what's the power of the Gospel of John, is that as you and I immerse ourselves in it, we become the disciple whom Jesus loves. And so when we see these stories of Jesus interacting with his disciples and going out and, and healing and preaching and all of these amazing moments in his life, we find ourselves wrapped into that story. There's this quote from Henry Nouwen that I just find so beautiful. He says, being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. Just over a year ago, uh, we were in here and we were worshiping and uh, we were getting ready to come to the Lord's table. And I had this, uh, this vision, the Lord reminded me of when I was a kid growing up in Michigan, you know, when we go outside uh, to play in the snow in winter. How many of you are from up north? And you remember those days. You remember how it almost took longer to get ready to go outside than you were actually outside? You had to put on layer upon layer, and you had thermals and all of this. Like all you Florida babies, you don't, you don't, you don't know what it's like. You maybe put on some sunscreen, and you just walk out the door. Um, but when, I, you know, when we were kids, we had to put on all of these layers of things. And then when uh, my mom would call us in for dinner, we had to come back into the house. And then you spend 30 minutes peeling it all off. And my youngest brother, Joel, he was like the kid in the onesie in the Christmas story, the little brother that like, <laughs> is like the little starfish following after because the thing's so thick. Um, but we had, to, we had to pause and we had to take off layer by layer all of this snow gear before we could come to the table. And the Lord really spoke to me about that you know, the, the beauty of when we come to his table as his children, um, that we too are to, to peel off all the layers of all of this extra identifiers that we have. All these different roles that we play, um, all of these different accomplishments that we have, all of our successes, our failures, not all of them are bad things, some of them are good things. But, but when we misalign our identity and we think that our identity is in our performance or what we do, when we think our identity is maybe in our failures, even when we think our identity is in these different relationships that we have with people and the roles that we might play and the titles that we put on those things, we, we miss the core of our, of our real identity, which is that we are the beloved. 
And so what John's going to invite us to do over this next season is to time and again come back to the Lord and to kind of shed all of those extra identifiers that we have and to have that courage and that vulnerability to stand before God simply as his beloved and allow him to speak to us there so that when we go out into the world and we take back up some of those things that are good things, um, they don't become the center of who we are. Um, So let's pray and we're going to dig into this. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you for each of your dear ones that are here tonight. Lord, whatever we're bringing in with us, we come before you, we come before your throne, and we lay down all of those, those extras, all of the different titles that we carry, all of those messages that we hear from the world around us, that it's, it's our successes and our failures that define us, all of the expectations uh, that other people have put on us or that we've put on ourselves, we lay those at your feet. Father, we want to come before you tonight uh, vulnerable, available. Give us the courage just to see ourselves as the beloved and the ones in whom you delight, not because of what we've done or what we haven't done, but because of who we are and the way you've created us. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I love that the gospel of John is the gospel of being the beloved. But I also love that that John stands out from the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call those the synoptic gospels because they're kind of a biography or a history of Jesus. But John starts from a very different place. And he uses all this amazing language in the first chapter um, that kind of gives us this gigantic heavenly perspective, and he kind of squashes it down into these earthly vessels. And the beauty of the first chapter of John, when it's shaped like that, is that it doesn't necessarily give us easy answers. When we see phrases about the word of God, or the light of the world, or the Lamb of God, all these different phrases, they're kind of indicating the thing beyond the thing. And so even the way that John phrases things in his gospel invites us into a mystery, that it's something more than we can just kind of understand intellectually on a Sunday evening and then walk away with, and it hasn't transformed us. But it begs us to step into his story a little bit more. It's the gospel of John that talks so much about belief. He uses that word over and over and over again. And the beauty is when we look at the letters of John towards the end of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, um, belief changes to knowing. But it's that, it's that belief that leads to intimacy, and it's that, that knowing that leads to intimacy is what we're really talking about. And so this is a gospel about a God who is supremely involved in his own creation. And so today, today we're going to be looking at a portion of John chapter 1, and in each of the succeeding weeks, we're going to be looking at a particular passage from each of these chapters as we kind of move our way towards Easter. That by the time we're at Easter, we've been so immersed in the story of Jesus together um, that we're able to really celebrate what the resurrection means. And so what I want us to look at uh, tonight is this. Uh, three ways that God pursues us, and it's going to be through the imagery of, of uh, John chapter 1. Uh, the Firstly, the, the foundation of his word. Secondly, the covenant of his presence. And finally, the reconciliation by the Lamb. And so these three images are going to become very major themes throughout Paul's gospel. 
And they're going to enable us as we step into seeing the way in which Jesus interacts with people and the way that Jesus prays and the way that Jesus preaches. Uh, We're going to see those things kind of unraveled through that. So the first one is this, um, the word of God, Christ as the foundation. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first five verses. John begins with a poem. We think that maybe this was like a first century hymn or a song in the church that they would sing. And so it uses this poetic language because, I've, as I've said before, it's, it's poetic language that invites us to that deeper place of truth. It invites us to interact with it and allow it to kind of wash over us. And so John begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Other translations say the darkness cannot comprehend it, which I absolutely adore. And so for any of us that have spent any time in the scripture, this would automatically call to mind the very beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we know that John is automatically alluding to the Old Testament, the story of God thus far. And what do we find in that very first lines of Genesis? That we have, we have God is present, and then we have the Spirit of God hovering over the water. The word hovering there is like brooding, like a bird. And then God speaks. And when God speaks, things are created, and he labels them good. And so God speaks the world into creation, and then finally it culminates with humanity on the sixth day, and he says, it is very, very good. And so John's inviting us to remember that's how this whole thing started. And so when he's telling us the story of Jesus, he's drawing in the story of all of creation, but he's also telling us in some way this is going to be a new creation dawning. And so God, as community, creates out of his joyful abundance of relationship. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. Because when Genesis 1 was written, all of the other narratives and all of the other tribes and peoples of the day kind of fundamentally said the same thing. The world is fundamentally broken and evil because the gods created out of brokenness and evil. So many of the stories in Mesopotamia at the time had gods at war and conflict, or they, were, they, they had you know, rage and jealousy, and, and out of that, creation billowed forth. And if that's your starting point for understanding how the world is today, then it really lowers your expectations of what God's going to do. Because God's not particularly interested in you. God seems pretty selfish. He's kind of like us, but just has more superpowers, basically. They have cool names like Marduk, if you're into that. You can look up Marduk. Um, But this is not the story that we find in Genesis, and it's not the story we find in John. We find this this God who is a community, and he doesn't create out of strife or discord or conflict. He creates of this overflowing joy because he labels everything that he creates good, and then he creates mankind. He says it's very good. And so you are the product of God's love for himself. God's love in a community. It's not a selfish kind of love that contains itself, but it's this self-giving love that can only expand and grow. And so John becomes one of the most Trinitarian gospels that we have because so much of the language that John weaves into his story of Jesus is about the connections and the relationships from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, and from the Trinitarian God to us as we're welcomed in to that community with God. 
And that connectedness becomes the central theme, but it's birthed out of this essential fundamental goodness. And so in this first line, John says, you know, the word was with God and the word was God. This is an amazing thing about even when you and I speak as being kind of these limited images of God. When there's, two, there's two amazing things about words. The first is that your words are kind of the actions of your heart and mind. I always love it when somebody says, you know, somebody says something terrible and they say, well, they've got a good heart. It's like, well, are we sure we want to say that? Maybe they have a complex heart. You know, because whether we intend it or not, the things that we speak out are coming out of our heart and our mind. And so it's kind of almost like the, the, the core inner workings of who we are um, gain shape and they gain language. And so the second thing about words is that words change things. Words shift the reality around us. And it's not a magic trick. I mean, look at even what happened 10 minutes ago. I said, let's fill in the middle, and you all did. That's power. That's authority. And that's the power of the word. Thank you for stroking my ego by playing along. <laughs> but the word, the word, the word of God was with God and is God himself. And so when God speaks, God's words are the essence of his, his heart, of his mind. What is, what is it that God's thinking about? What is it that God uh, feels? And that's Jesus. And when God speaks, things are brought into creation. So Jesus is what God is really like. Jesus is what God is really like. Another way to say perhaps is, of everything that God has ever said, ever, 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 Jesus is the best thing that he could possibly say. There is no more beautiful thing that God could have spoken except for Jesus Christ himself. And I love that it says the word was with God. It's interesting in the Hebrew, there's not a word like presence, like we have this word presence, but the word is more specifically translated as face-to-faceness. So when it's talking about the word of God being with God himself, it's talking about God the Father and God the Son being face to face with one another. The writer Ian Morgan Crone talks about how he longs that we would understand God um, looking over us like the mother gazing upon the sleeping infant. That kind of tenderness and that of silent affection. It's the way that God looks at Jesus and that's the way that God looks at us. And so Jesus is God perfectly expressed. But Jesus is also God sent in a, in a way, in a vessel, that he can meet us in all of our limited capacity. I think a lot of times in our modern culture, the word God has been made toxic because of what people have learned about him before or because of how he's been presented uh, by various people that claim to believe in God. And the name God is so often toxic, but when we often talk to people about Jesus, they almost unilaterally at least approve of him in some way. You know, a lot of people are afraid of God, but they're really drawn to Jesus in some way. Um, there's been a friend of mine in Nashville over the past year who has been kind of going through a crisis of faith, and we touch base every once in a while. And a few months ago, we were, he was just in this place, and he says, I don't know if I believe in God. I don't even know if I want to call myself a Christian right now, and I'm just working through all these things from my past. And I said, what do you think about Jesus? Just right now, what do you think about Jesus? And he went to this story of the previous 10 years of church experience. 
He said, well, I grew up in this kind of Pentecostal church, um, and this is the way they talked about it, and this is where I was prophetically abused, and then I kind of moved into more of an evangelical world, and this is how it was presented, and then I went out on the mission field, and this is how it was talked about. And I said, hold on, pause for a second. You're telling me how a lot of other different people have talked about God and how they've talked about Jesus. But what do you think of Jesus right now? And he broke down and wept because he, he didn't know. They've been, become so clouded by the rumors of what God is like from the people around him that he wasn't able to see Jesus. And it's been amazing since that moment. He, he, he messaged me just a couple weeks ago and he said, Ryan, um, I've started reading the Bible again. I can, I'm only in the Gospels. I'm not going to go anywhere else right now. And I was like, that's okay. That's a great place to start. But he's beginning to rebuild his understanding of what God is like by gazing into the sweet face of Jesus. Because Jesus delivers us from all of these idolatrous versions of God. So many ideas of God that have been tainted by our pagan upbringings or have been tainted by philosophies that try to turn God into a concept or try to reduce him and control him or kind of push him along to the side. But Jesus delivers us from all of those idolatrous notions of what God is like. And so when you and I keep looking at the face of Jesus, we're seeing God as he really is. But you and I are not called to gaze into the sweet face of Jesus in order to hide from the world. Because I think sometimes we sell it in that way, just keep your, faith, just keep your sight on Jesus, which means put your blinders up, don't look at anything else. But it's when we can gaze onto the sweet face of Jesus, it actually empowers us to be more fully present wherever we're at. And so let's continue reading um, the poem that John gives us here in the beginning. In verse 9, it says this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Through him, all things were created. You see, the Greeks already had this idea in their philosophy of the logos, which is their word for word. And the logos was kind of this animating force that, that all of creation is suspended and kind of holds it together. And John and Paul and some of the other writers of the New Testament, the early church said, yes, that's right, but that logos has a name. That logos is not just a concept, that logos is a person. And so John weaves together here the Hebrew story of the Old Testament and this Greek philosophy to give us this understanding that it's through the Christ, through Jesus, all things came into creation. So when God speaks, that's Jesus. And it's through Christ that you were created. And it's through Christ that you're held together, that all of the atoms in your body don't suddenly explode and go everywhere. That's the responsibility of Christ in us. But John goes on to say, even though the world was created through him, when he came to the world, they didn't recognize him. And so he starts to use this language where he binds together word and light. These two, these two concepts uh, of, of movement from the source, that God speaks forward, but the light kind of shines um, out from his person. And then he talks about the counterbalance, which is sin and darkness, 
and that the sin and the darkness are about this disconnection from God. When we take this passage about relationship, about being connected with God, we begin to see that there's echoes of the fall that we read about in Genesis 3. And it's this fall from intimacy with God and this fall from us understanding our true identities. And so even here, you know, John is continuing to weave in the Hebrew story. You were created through Christ. You were an intentional decision by God. You are desired. This is ground zero for our identity. But that identity gets so obscured by all of these other things going on around us that deaden our senses. And so like like we see with Adam and Eve, like we see with everyone kind of after that generation after generation, the darkness that we find ourselves in is our ignorance to the reality of God. And not only our ignorance to the reality of God, but our ignorance to our connection with him and our ignorance to who he's really created us to be. And we forget about God's design for us. We forget about his intention and his will for all of his creation. Eli Weissel, a a Holocaust survivor, said this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of beauty is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, It's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, but indifference between life and death. You see, when you and I began to fall asleep, when we began to forget the story of God, when we began to forget what the foundation of all of this really is, that's the place where we enter into darkness. And we use that term sin to talk about that disconnectedness. And this is the crazy thing about sin. I think nine times out of ten, we, si- we sin more out of our ignorance than we do out of our willful spite. How many of you sin today? Okay. I'm pretty honest in here. That's all right. Did you do it on purpose? I, I almost guarantee you, I know most of you, and you're all really sweet people, and you'd never heard a fly. But so often, we sin not because it's our intention but because we've fallen asleep, because we step back into the darkness and we forgot what God is really like. We forgot who we really are. We started to believe that some of the other things that people have said about us, or even maybe what we've said about ourselves, we start to believe that that's basically the truth. And it's out of that darkness and that ignorance or that indifference that we actually hurt ourselves and we hurt other people and we disconnect from God. And we go around bumping in the dark stumbling our way through life because we've lost the plot. And so much of what John intends to do here in the very beginning of his gospel is to show how God wants to make things right through his son. So when he speaks of the word and then he speaks of the light, it's the light shines into the darkness and now you and I can begin to see things as they really are. And we can respond to that through his grace and begin to to uncover the, the, the truth of our real identity as the beloved. And through that connection with God, then we step deeper into the reality of who we're called to be, and we actually become part of that light. And so the word is God's foundation for all of creation, but because of this fall, because of this uh, stepping back into darkness, God had to move from his intentions to action. And that brings us to the second image, the tabernacle 
the word made flesh. We're going to read in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This is, this is going to blow your mind grapes right here. No one has ever seen God. Think about that for a second. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So it says the word becomes flesh. The, 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 the literal translation there is a word It sounds like tabernacled. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts in the message. He says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Perhaps we could even say God decided to pitch his tent among us, his people. And it's that imagery that's so beautiful that shows that it's actually God who comes and meets us where we're at. That in the Old Testament, as, as Israel was kind of moving through the desert, they had this, this tabernacle. It was a very large tent. It's kind of an early church that they would establish wherever they were at, and they'd actually build um, their campsites around it. And within the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, and that was ground zero where God really was. The Ark carried all of these various um, you know, devices and whatnot inside of it, but there was the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where the glory of God would hover, and the people could always see it and know that God was choosing to be with them. And so whenever Israel would pack up their tents and move, they'd, they'd take the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them, and wherever they decided to make camp, they'd start by building the tabernacle with the Ark inside of it, and then they'd build all of their tents around that. And so the tabernacle and the ark were these visual reminders to Israel at every point along the way of God's presence, that he was with them, that he was moving with them. And so God is committed to moving through the story with us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Now, why does it matter that God came in the flesh you know, some of us have been led to believe that Jesus is just a really inspired teacher. And somewhere along the way, people begin to add into this myth uh, to make him God himself. But it's interesting that none of the New Testament writers present it that way. Nobody in the New Testament goes, you know what, I think honestly at the end of the day, Jesus was just a really good teacher. He just came to show us a better way, and that was about it. But for all of them, it was absolutely imperative that we saw that, that God was Jesus and that Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was God incarnate. And I've even heard some people say sometimes, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'd say, I think you need to go and read the Gospels again. Because maybe you've just heard that as a rumor that prevents you from engaging with this beautiful and dynamic action of God. That all through Jesus' ministry, there are key phrases that he uses and prophetic acts that he takes on and all of these symbols that he embodies that are saying to us, this is what it looks like when God comes and makes camp with his people. This is what it looks like when God makes a covenant promise to be with us and to never leave us nor forsake us. 
And so John moves in that opposite direction from all of the other Gospels where they begin with Jesus as a man and kind of the punchline is Jesus has been God this whole time. And, and John starts by just putting it right out there in the very beginning and saying, no, Jesus is God. And he gives us all of these symbols that show that everything in the Old Testament was just a foretaste of what was to actually come. That the covenant, or the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, all of these, these were just the warm-up for the main gig. These were all just little images that were showing us what it's really going to be like when God shows up in the neighborhood. And that witness of God, the covenant promise of God to be with us and to move through the story with us, it's this tangible experience of God that makes it real. So we think that the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were probably written by the community that John established in southern Turkey. And you can tell this because the way that they write is so much his heart, and it's so unique to this little community. And they, they start off 1st John like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so for the community of John, God was tangible. God was a reality that they had experienced. It wasn't rumors. It wasn't little encouraging sayings that kind of got them out of bed in the morning. It was, no, 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 we've, we've touched him. We've heard him. We've seen him. And we've been transformed by encountering God as he really is in Christ Jesus. And that's changed everything for us. And so this comes back to this idea of why we're even doing this series in search of the beloved. That God is this mystery for us to experience. God is this mystery for us to explore God's not some sort of abstract concept that just explains things away. But when we look at Jesus and we see the face of God, it becomes this exploration that takes the rest of our lives. I think it's the second thing about this covenant promise to be with us. God has made the first move to search for us on our terms. John uses this phrase, um, grace in place of grace already given in verse 16, which I think is such great language. Because John recognizes that through the tabernacle and the, the Ark of the Covenant and through Moses, there was a lot of grace there. That was God empowering his people to step out of this old place of slavery, to step out of the land of death, death and begin to move into the promised land. And so that grace is there. The law was grace but the grace that we have in Christ Jesus is like grace on top of grace. Even Paul uses that in a similar language of like glory upon glory. That's what he's talking about. It's this ever-increasing exploration of how much God can really actually be with us. And he's alluding to this idea that now there's a new slavery. It's not just the Israelites that are trapped in Egypt, but it's all of us being trapped by the Lord of this world who is the Satan. All of us being trapped by evil. And so we need a new Moses, not a flawed human being that continues to kind of fight with God, but eventually kind of gives over and stumbles his way through the desert for 40 days, but a new Moses that can come along perfectly and lead us out of death into life. And so what we're really seeing here with this image of the tabernacle is that whatever Jesus is about to do, it's this new exodus. 
It's this new movement out of the place of brokenness and slavery into life eternal, fully present to God. You know, I, I, I've been able to, to talk with a couple of you um, over these past few weeks, but this past couple months has been really, really difficult for me on a lot of levels. You know, I think it's been for a lot of us, um, you know, when we're looking at what's going on in our nation overall, you know, even all this the stuff with immigration over the past week, like that really hits home personally for me, you know. Like I'm actually looking into maybe possibly getting my citizenship. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but there's been a lot, you know, there's been a lot of things going on nationally. There's been a lot of things going on uh, within our community, a lot of, of, of shifting and conversations and questions and and, and some of those really core important things. And, and even within myself, there's been a lot of self-examination over the past six months where the God is really beginning to show me uh, the places of darkness in my own life, in my own heart, in my own mind. And I don't know about you, but when I feel uh, in, in that place of insecurity, I feel disoriented. The best way that I can put it is I always feel like I'm three feet to the right of where I should be. Like everything looks familiar and it's kind of supposed to be here, but I'm not. I'm the one that's not quite right. And so I often feel that physical displacement when I'm insecure or when I, when I, when I feel confused or when I feel overwhelmed, uh, which is actually quite often. But what's been so amazing even this week, preparing for this message and, and stepping into the words of John is to, is to, to recenter and go, this is the foundation. This is the core this is, this is the really real. This is the story of God. That God created all of this. He created you and he created me and he called it good. And then when it started to drift away from him, God actually stepped in and made a covenant with his own creation to be with us and to never leave us or forsake us. And I need to be reminded of that story as much as you. Because it's so easy to hear all of these outside narratives that kind of draw our attention away from the story of God. We begin to believe it's about something else. It's about someone else. We begin to believe all of these lies about who we really are. But the beauty of us in the midst of whatever you're going through right now, to recenter on those truths that God is with us and he will never leave us, is imperative for us to understand what's really going on. And so I want us to take a moment. I'm going to just ask this question, really two questions. How has Jesus revealed himself to you recently? And perhaps you need to actually ask the second one. How are you desperate to know him right now? And so I want us to do is to take two to three minutes and just turn to the person next to us and just talk about one of these two um, questions, because it's so important that in the same way that God speaks and gives something shape and flesh, that when you and I speak, when we give testimony, when we speak it out to one another, it becomes more real, and we're able to immerse ourselves in that. So go ahead and take a minute or two, uh, and turn to the person next to you, and, and discuss those questions. So there's so much value to us being able to pause, you know, when there's moments of feeling overwhelmed or there's moments of confusion, when we feel like we're losing the plot about what God's really up to or who we really are, and to ask ourselves these questions, to stop and to say, okay, Jesus, who, who have you been revealing yourself to me? Which, which facet of your character am I kind of sitting in right now in this season? Give me the language to be able to speak that out. 
Um, but then secondly, to be able to confess to him, this is who I need you to be today. This is the place that I find myself in. And I, and I know from your word, this is who you are. But I need that tangible experience of it. This is why the scriptures tell us time and again to give testimony or to testify about the truth of who he is because sometimes we need to say things that we might not believe in the moment because that's where it really becomes faith. And it becomes this invitation for us to step into that deeper story and to realign our starting point so that we know what we're really facing. And so we see Jesus as the word of God that through him all things were created. We see Jesus as the tabernacle or the tent of God that moves through our story with us, committing to being with us and being for us wherever we go. And finally, we have to ask ourselves, okay, now that God is with us, how is he going to do it? How is he going to rescue us? How is he going to reconcile us to the Father? And that brings us to our final image, the Lamb, the Word made flesh and the flesh broken for you. And so in his first chapter, John the Evangelist introduces us to his character, John the Baptist. And there's this little interaction where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they, they come to John the Baptist, who's baptizing people kind of on the outskirts of the city, and they say, are you the Elijah that was promised to come? Because, you know, Elijah had been taken up in a chariot by the Lord in the Old Testament, and it was prophesied that he was going to someday return. He said, no, I'm not Elijah. And he said, well, are you the, the capital P prophet? Speaking of Moses, are you the one that's coming to deliver us? Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and, and on all of Israel in the first century knew we're kind of still in exile. We're back in, in our land, but we feel that absence of God uh, with us right now. And Sean says, no, I'm not, I'm not the prophet. I just came to testify about the Messiah, the one who is to come. And so he becomes that voice in the wilderness declaring, prepare the way for the Lord. And so we, we read this in John 29 and 30. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And so if you haven't picked up on it now, John is really telling us the entire story of the Old Testament all over again. That with the word of God, we're talking about Genesis. With this tabernacle image, we're talking about Exodus. And now we're talking about the temple era and the, the sacrifice era. And so it's important for us to pause and to say, what, is, what does it mean to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Because this is the way in which God is going to reconcile creation back into himself. And so the sacrificial lamb, there had to be something pure and worthy to bear that sin, to bear that disconnection and that slavery to Satan on our behalf. And I think a lot of times we, we have been taught unbiblical perspectives of what those sacrifices were. That ironically enough, we've inherited these pagan ideas that you, something had to die in order to appease God's bloodlust. Or you might even say that, you know, angry, drunk dad is coming after us. And he's going to beat us up for doing the wrong thing. But fortunately, our big brother Jesus stepped in and took the blow on our behalf. How many of you grew up with that story? Maybe you don't want to admit that one. <laughs> but it's actually a very unbiblical view of what this sacrificial lamb was like in the Old Testament. That it's very likely that Israel was already in the business of doing sacrifice like everybody else around them did. 
And so when God got a hold of them and he's kind of reconditioning them and rehabilitating them, he's using things that were already present within their own culture in order to, to redeem the action, to redeem the symbol, and to make it about his purposes. And so a sacrifice in the Old Testament is more about making a covenant commitment than it is about appeasement, about getting the gods off of our backs so they won't destroy us. The idea of a covenant is to say that, that we are going to be faithful to this. So there's this imagery uh, of God making the covenant with Abraham and they split a bull down the middle. And it's God who actually passes through the middle of the sacrifice, which is God symbolically saying, if I don't hold to my end of the deal, then let this be my fate. Let me be the one that's split in two. And so this is the risk of God giving us free will, is that we weren't destined we, it was not determined that you and I were going to walk away from God and into the darkness, but that you and I, because we forgot the plot, condemned ourselves to cycles of brokenness and violence, and the wages of sin are death, or is death, technically, in Scripture. And we're the ones that walked away because of the free will that God gave us in order for us to be able to authentically love him. And so God himself becomes a human and God himself becomes the first faithful human covenant partner where you and I couldn't do it. We couldn't keep up our end of the bargain. So God comes in and, and steps in on our behalf in order to fulfill that covenant. And then it's God himself who comes along and bears the full deaf consequences of the fact that we broke the covenant, of the fact that we're the ones that continue to sin, whether it's out of ignorance or spite. And so the Lamb of God is Jesus on the cross. It's God himself, God incarnate, taking upon himself all of the sin of all of the people and putting that to death so that we can be brought back into relationship with God. And so when we talk about atonement, we're not talking about appeasing the bloodlust of an angry God up on a mountain somewhere, but we're talking about Christ victorious over death. Christ victorious over evil. Christ victorious over the Lord of this world who is the Satan. Of putting all of that to death so that you and I can be reconciled to God. And so Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, that was promised to rescue us from sin and darkness. That he is the new Moses, but he's also the sacrifice himself. That God is so desperately in love with us that he himself would become the sacrifice on our behalf to save us out of this new Egypt, to save us out of this new slavery. The only way to rescue us from darkness and slavery is through forgiveness and sacrificial love. It would have never worked if God just came in with a bigger sword and just agreed to be even stronger than us or even more violent than us in order to make us do what he wanted. But it was this radical self-giving, sacrificial, upside-down process that God on a cross becomes weakness, that God on a cross loses the battle, that God on a cross faces the, the darkness of Satan, the darkness of the world, the darkness of our own flesh, and doesn't fight back against those things, but instead passes right through them to bring us into new life. And this is the power of this story. You and I have a God that submits to us. He's not a God that demands things from us in order to, to massage his own ego, 
In Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Paul gives us yet another hymn, another poem, and he says, though Christ was equal with God, he didn't consider that equality with God something to be taken advantage of, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. He didn't even put himself on the level with us. He actually made himself nothing. He made himself less than a human being so he could place himself beneath us and to lift us up into our proper identity. And so all of these things, the word of God, the, the, the tabernacle and covenant of God, the lamb of God, all of these things are going to find their conclusion by the end of the gospel of John. And my hope for you and my hope for me is that we'll be able to end up at the very end of the story on Easter day and be able to proclaim with the same conviction that, that Thomas did when he experienced Jesus, my Lord and my God. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing in this series. And when you and I begin to to receive that God who's with us, that turns the whole story inside out in order to rescue us, God's going to begin to forge that new creation. And in that new creation, he begins to forge a new community of people like you and I who have said yes to Jesus. And we become the ambassadors of that light. We become, like we talked about over the summer, the, the little colony of God, the little colony of heaven that shows what the ultimate destiny for all of this is going to be. We're called to be a loving community, founded on his word, committed to his presence, and reconciled by his lamb. So let's stand together and sing. I think worship like a, is another way that we give testimony that we sing over ourselves and we sing over one another these things that are true. And maybe we believe them right now and maybe we don't. Maybe they're things that we, we've been swimming around in for a long time and maybe they're things that we really need to see come true in our own lives. But we come together and we sing and we worship God and something happens in that space where God gives us that tangible experience of Jesus that binds us together as people, that rescues us out of darkness, that wakes us back up to his story, his intention, and his will. And so I want you, as we're singing these next couple of songs, not just to kind of go through the motions, but really think about what it is that you're saying, because you're saying it on behalf of all of us. You're singing it over all of us, and we all need to hear you sing. We need to hear what you have to say, because we want to do the same thing for you. So let's pray and let's worship our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that is the Gospel of John. We thank you for this gigantic heavenly perspective that, you're, that we're trying to squeeze into these earthly vessels. We thank you that these words aren't conclusions to a conversation, but they're just the beginning. That they're the invitation for us to step into the mystery of encountering you the way that you really are, that when we see the face of Jesus, we see your face. Lord, we repent of any time that we've sold you short, where we have pitted you against your son, where we believe this is just another one of those creation myths where the gods are angry and that we're just caught in the middle. But instead, Lord, realign us, recenter us to your story of the word made flesh and the flesh broken open to 
welcome us back into relationship with you. So Father, we give you permission to move freely here tonight through our worship. Send your spirit. We pray these things in the beautiful and blessed name of Jesus.